welcome to Occult Experiments in the Home, Magic, Spirituality and the Paranormal in Personal Experience and in Practice. Two horrible paintings, horrible in the sense that they depict a horrific scene, both of them explorations of the same theme, both of them given the same title, Saturn Devouring His Son, the first by Peter Paul Rubens, a Flemish artist. It was completed in the year 1636, and the second by the Spanish artist, Francisco Goya, thought to have been painted sometime close to 1823. Rubens' painting depicts Saturn as a old grey-haired man stooped over but somehow at the same time powerful looking quite muscular he holds a sickle on a long pole in his right hand and with his left hand he's scooping up an infant boy and literally biting a chunk out of this baby's chest and the baby is screaming in agony it's a truly horrible image. Rubens renders the scene in quite a realistic style. It's anatomically correct. It looks pretty much what you would expect such a horrible thing to look like. It's a man eating a baby and it presents us with the full horror of that, the full difficulty, the physical struggle and effort that that would entail. Goya's painting is different, also very horrible, but horrible in a slightly different way. Saturn is depicted as a kind of giant, he's bigger than his son who he's devouring but the son in Goya's version is not a baby it's the headless mutilated remains of an adult male that we see satin cramming desperately into his mouth in Rubens painting the expression on Saturn's face is relentless ruthless there's a kind of grim concentration. He's got a job to do and he's going to see it through. He's going to eat that baby. But Goya's painting is quite different with regard to Saturn's facial expression. And this for me is the most significant difference between the two. Because what we see on Saturn's face in Goya's version is a kind of terrified madness. Goya's Saturn looks as horrified by what he's doing as we are horrified at seeing it. There's an expression in the face that is at once crazed, but also horrified by the fact that what's being done is totally out of control. And I think it's because Saturn isn't depicted as recognisably a realistic human being but as a slightly inhuman looking giant that Goya's painting has a real creepiness, uncanniness about it an edge of supernatural terror whereas Rubens painting presents us with more of a sense because of its realism of an out-and-out atrocity, something that evokes from us feelings of horror and revulsion and distress because it's all too real and physical. What's been on my mind this week has been the question of evil, the question of whether there might be something evil, something bad, embedded into the very nature of reality itself and if so how do we deal with that how do we respond to or embrace that indeed as magicians should 
our magical practice aim to either perhaps respond to it or perhaps embrace it. And I wanted to begin with the myth of Saturn, or Kronos, as he was known to the Greeks, because I think that myth gives us a narrative for thinking around these questions. The myth of Kronos is a story around this idea of something bad, dark, evil, hovering behind the scenes in reality, or somehow constitutive in the very origin of reality itself, in the way that it came to take its form. Kronos was the son of Uranus and the father of Zeus, the deity who came to be the king of the gods. But before Zeus, Kronos ruled, and Kronos came to power by castrating his father Uranus, killing him in the process. After Kronos came to power, there was a prophecy that one day he would be overthrown, just as he had overthrown his father, and that one of his sons would one day grow mightier than him and assume his place. Cronus wasn't keen on this idea. He was married to his sister, the goddess Rhea. So, every year when Rhea bore him a child, Cronus ate the child after it was born. First there was the goddess Hestia, and then the goddess Demeter and Hera, and after those three daughters he had three sons, the first of them Hades, and then Poseidon, and Zeus was his sixth and youngest child. Rhea, Zeus's mother, was heartily sick, I imagine, of seeing her children eaten by this point. She gave birth to Zeus under the cover of night, and had him smuggled away to be brought up by nymphs and shepherds and his foster brother, the god Pan. And then she wrapped a rock in the swaddling clothes of a baby and presented that to Kronos. And that was what he ended up swallowing, thinking it was Zeus. Eventually, Zeus grew to manhood and went back to Kronos in disguise as his cupbearer. He gave Kronos a drink with poison in it that would make him sick. And then up came the stone that he had swallowed, and after the stone his five brothers and sisters were also vomited out into the world. And then those six gods and goddesses, the Olympians, waged war upon Kronos and his allies, the Titans. Eventually the Titans were defeated and... Interestingly, in some versions of the myth, it's said that they were exiled off in the furthest west, somewhere around the British Isles. Who knows, maybe that's a part of the world where the influence of Kronos is still particularly felt. Not only is the myth of Kronos a story about the interconnectedness and nature of change, power and time. Kronos himself is a powerful archetype. An archetype, I think, that has a powerful influence upon the world today, as if maybe something in the modern world were out of balance or weak, and Kronos is sensing an opportunity to make himself felt in the world again. Kronos is the archetype of the fanatical autocrat. His tactic for holding on to and arrogating power is to obliterate the possibility of change. This impulse to prevent himself being unseated by the inevitable passage of time exceeds so far that he's prepared to eat his own children. 
Kronos wants the future all to himself. He wants it to be all his own. Rather than conferring a future upon the next generation or sharing the future with them, instead he consumes that generation, reincorporates his children back into himself. I don't think there could be a more graphic and macabre symbol than eating one's own children, denying life and a future to successive generations, which underlies this mindset that Kronos typifies, that cannot bear any relinquishment of power. Kronos is the shadow side of conservatism. Conservatism, in its true Burkean sense, isn't an ideology I personally subscribe to, but I can see how it makes sense to people. What it boils down to is you hold on to the good things from the past. You don't change them. You keep them the way they are so they can go on delivering their benefits. But who is it that gets to decide what's good and what isn't? Kronos rears his ugly grey head when those in power make the mistake of deciding that what's good for them is good for everybody. Over recent decades in the West, which, remember, is the place where Kronos was supposedly exiled to, we've seen the older generations accrue more and more of the wealth, whilst younger generations seem increasingly stripped of opportunities. Younger people no longer have the access to completely free education that I did. They no longer have access to stable employment opportunities. They're living with their parents for longer and they're remaining financially dependent upon their parents for longer. There does indeed seem to be a dynamic unleashed in society that consumes the young for the benefit of the old. That smells suspiciously like Kronos. And there's a darker, even more disturbing aspect to this archetype. Over recent decades also, suspicions have grown and persisted of the possibility of some kind of organised network or institution in the upper echelons of society, among the great and the powerful in politics, business and the entertainment industry, of systematic child sexual abuse. This, too, it seems to me, stinks of Kronos. Recently, I watched the documentary series Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, on Netflix, which examined the crimes of this billionaire financier and prolific paedophile. One of the questions that Epstein's case leaves us with, I think, is just why? Why did he have that need to go out of his way to harm and injure the lives of so many young women and young girls. The police discovered in one of his houses false passports and some diamonds that suggested an escape plan. Evidently he knew that what he was doing could ruin him. Obviously the fact that it was wrong and harmful didn't seem to deter him, but even the knowledge that he could be ruined by it. Not even a selfish motive seemed able to sway him either. There's something bad there, something bizarre and evil that seems entirely out of control and perhaps beyond any kind of rational explanation. What the archetype of Kronos maybe offers is at least a kind of 
template that we can set these kinds of inexplicably depraved behaviours against. Kronos, remember, deposed his father Uranus by castrating him. But once he'd assumed power, then there was the prophecy that one day one of his sons would do the same to him. Kronos consuming, appropriating, corrupting the lives of the generation that comes after him. It's a way of cancelling the future, ensuring that for him everything stays the same, he remains in power. But another way of describing this, perhaps, is Kronos is also attempting to escape karma. What he did to Uranus, he's not going to let happen to him. Kronos, fundamentally, is attempting to escape any responsibility and any consequences of his own actions. Kronos is a god and, for a time at least, by eating his children, he did shut down karma. He shut down the possibility of his own actions having any consequences for himself. Abusers of children in positions of power, like Jeffrey Epstein or Jimmy Savile, they have worked their way into positions where, due to their wealth and influence, they too perhaps feel that somehow they've placed themselves beyond the law. But whatever they might imagine about themselves, that doesn't make them special. That doesn't make them gods. They've just become enslaved to something debased and corrupted within themselves. I'm sorry to have led us into such a dark and horrible place. But I think we are being stalked and haunted by the archetype of Kronos. By refusing to allow himself to be replaced by the generation that is coming up after him, he provides a pattern for all autocrats and tyrants. The fact that so many people seem to believe in the existence of a wealthy, powerful elite, the members of which might be celebrating their position by despoiling and destroying the lives of the young. That belief, that suspicion haunts Western societies. Unfortunately, it isn't completely without a basis in truth. Some of these cases have been proved beyond all reasonable doubt. And more generally, more pervasively, as we've seen in the kinds of social policies enacted in recent decades. Opportunities for the young to prosper have been limited and curtailed in ways that often tend to benefit the elderly instead. Who knows, maybe the archetype of Kronos has become so active in the face of a growing sense that there may be no future or that the future is becoming increasingly hard to visualise. In that case, what Kronos offers at the very least is, by way of cancelling the future, a means of sustaining for a while longer, perhaps, the disaster of the present. The problem with archetypes, however, the problem with gods is that they're hard-coded into reality. There's no reasoning with them, there's no way around them. If we get too close to Kronos, we'll just become suffused by insanity and depravity and probably be destroyed. We can't bargain with gods, we can't persuade Kronos somehow to be a bit less like Kronos. 
the gods do what they do. They can't be anything other than what they are. In that respect, they're paradoxically perfect. It's only human beings that live in a world where things can be other than what they seem and things can become other than what they are. Having identified the presence of Kronos, it falls to us to marshal some kind of reaction, response to that. And this is maybe what we see in those paintings by Rubens and Goya, two contrasting possible trajectories of response. On the one hand, Rubens with his very realistic depiction of Kronos. He presents us with what it would really look like if an old man ate a baby. It's horrific, but it's almost as if he's saying, this is what it is. Confront it. Rubens is the approach, perhaps, that takes into account how the gods are hardwired into reality. Maybe everything we value and everything we cherish will be threatened and destroyed in the encounter with Kronos. But Kronos is an aspect of reality and what else are we going to be destroyed by if it's not by something real? And on the other hand, Goya's depiction seems to say, this is happening, this is real, but it shouldn't be. Saturn himself looks horrified in Goya's painting by what he himself is doing. In that respect, I think there's something less like a god here and more like a human being. A sense of being out of control, a sense of being impelled by a force stronger than personal will. There's a strong humanism in Goya's rendition for all its horror. Goya himself never gave a title to this image, only from its appearance has it been inferred that it even shows Saturn. Goya had witnessed the horror of war firsthand, and the image is perhaps an allegorical response to those experiences. That response, by maintaining a spark of humanity, falls away from the divine, perhaps, falls away from how reality itself is hard-coded, with its sense of this is happening, this is real, but it shouldn't be. Goya enacts an attempt to retreat from horror into humanity. Which of these trajectories or paths is it appropriate to take? And what are their consequences? On the one hand, we're saying, this is awful, this is terrible, but it's real. And as such, we must face, confront. And if we're destroyed, then so be it. Or on the other hand, we're saying, this is happening, this is real, and it's horrible. But it shouldn't be happening. And it's arising because something is wrong, and we need to put right that wrong. This must not be. Probably, instinctively, we're drawn more to one of these responses than to the other. One of them perhaps seems to us at first glance to be more ethical than the other. If that's the case, maybe take a step back for a moment and consider. What we've got here are, in effect, two kinds of gestures. On the one hand, to confront and seek to engage. On the other hand, to repudiate and seek to negate. I think it's going to depend very heavily upon the specifics of a circumstance, whether one of those responses can be considered as being more or less ethical than the other. 
to probe more deeply into the nature of these two trajectories. I propose to get cabalistic for a while. We shall turn to the tree of life, which is supposedly a map of how the divine nature is progressively filtered and stepped down in order to give rise to what we perceive as everyday reality. Over the past few weeks I've been wrestling with this question of what kind of reaction, what kind of trajectory I take when I'm confronted with horror and evil and how perhaps intending towards one more than the other I'm overlooking important truths and missing out on opportunities to deepen and widen my spiritual practice. A few weeks ago I did an episode on the Hierophant, one of the cards in the tarot, sometimes quite often called the Pope. And in that episode I was exploring this archetype of a kind, compassionate male figure. The idea of a kind patriarch seems a oxymoron to us now. It's almost as if, as this figure has set below the horizon, the dark, malevolent figure of Kronos has assumed prominence instead the tyrant, the abuser and destroyer of children. Both of these figures, the Hierophant and Kronos, have corresponding Sephiroth on the Tree of Life. Bynar, one of the supernal triad at the very top of the tree, corresponds to Saturn and appearing below Saturn and on the opposite side of the tree, on the right-hand side, is the Sephira Chesed. This Sephira corresponds to Jupiter, or, of course, Zeus in his Greek guise. Chesed translates as loving-kindness or mercy, and the attributes of this Sephira very much relate to the figure of the Hierophant, the kind, loving patriarch. Every path on the Tree of Life has been mapped onto a tarot card, and indeed the path that descends down to Chesed from Chokma above it is indeed the Hierophant. So there are associations on the Tree of Life with Saturn Kronos and Zeus Jupiter. And if, as I mentioned earlier, the Tree of Life is a map of the nature of reality, then the suggestion here, maybe, is something in that relationship between Kronos and Zeus is describing to us something about the nature of reality itself. It was whilst listening to a really great episode of the Weird Studies podcast with Phil Ford and J.F. Martel on another tarot card altogether, The Wheel of Fortune, that they referred to a passage in a book by Lon Milo Duquette that casts some really interesting light on the relationship between Kronos and Zeus as it's reflected on the Tree of Life. In his commentary on the tarot card, The Wheel of Fortune, Duquette ends up retelling the myth of Saturn eating his children and the story of Jupiter's birth. Why am I telling you this story here? Duquette writes. Because, in Kabbalistic terms, when Sibylle, or Rhea, removed baby Jupiter, or Zeus, from Saturn's presence, or Kronos, she disturbed the status quo of pre-creation chaos. Above the abyss, all opposites are reconciled. There is no concept of change or luck, or anything else we can comprehend. It's only below the abyss 
that the lumbering apparatus of forces and principles that appear to drive the universe is set in motion. The fundamental flywheel that keeps this great machine churning out everything we interpret as existence is a very efficient little perpetual motion device located in the highest sephira below the abyss, Chesed, the sphere of Jupiter. What Duquette is suggesting here, and what was explored in depth in that episode of Weird Studies that I mentioned, is the idea that the wheel of fortune in the tarot is the wheel of karma. As we considered earlier, what Kronos does, he does in order to prevent change occurring in his world. He overthrew his father. He doesn't want the same to happen to him. So by eating his children, he tries to overcome the consequences that follow from his decision to overthrow his father. Kronos suspends change, Kronos suspends karma itself. But with the birth of Zeus and the eventual overthrow of Kronos by Zeus and his siblings, things start moving again, things start to change. A whole new crew of gods comes into the world. Reality becomes more diverse, dynamic. But the price of this is change. The price of this is the appearance of the law of karma in the world. And it comes with Zeus. This is what Zeus brings in his wake. On the tree of life, as we saw, the path flowing down from Chokma, the sephira above Chesed, is the Hierophant. And the path flowing immediately down from Chesed, down towards the Sephira below, Netzach, is the Wheel of Fortune, Karma. Chesed is the highest Sephira below the Abyss. In other words, loving-kindness is the greatest thing that we can see around us in the mundane world. But with that, the structure of the Tree of Life suggests comes karma, the price of being able to act upon the world, being able to bring about change, is that we're subject to the consequences of our acts. That was specifically what Kronos set out to avoid. He tried, and I think in his earthly manifestations is still trying to always put himself above the law under the rule of Jupiter everybody is subject to the law everybody is subject to karma when we take responsibility for our actions then we open up the possibility of acting differently acting for the best if we choose not to do that if we decide for example that there's nothing I can do or there is no free will And there may, in certain instances, be very good reasons for reaching one of those conclusions. Then what confronts us is the challenge of taking ownership of the way things are. We have to say, in effect, there is no alternative. This is what it is, and I'm prepared to live with the consequences of that. What we have here... What these two trajectories reflect, I think, are the right-hand and the left-hand pillars on the Tree of Life. And sometimes these are also conflated with the so-called right-hand path and left-hand path in magic. Chesed, the Hierophant, Zeus, Jupiter, is there on the right-hand pillow underneath Chokma. And there on the other side, on the left-hand pillar at the very top, is Saturn, Kronos. So Chesed on the right-hand side is taking influence down from Chokma above it. And Chokma is the very first, the very slightest manifestation of something 
which is being filtered down from Keta above it at the very top of the tree, which is pure emptiness. Chokma is the inspiration, the intention towards something. The very first inkling of something manifesting, even before whatever it is that is going to manifest, appears. And we see this echoed down in Chesed, which, as we saw, means loving-kindness, as perhaps the act of blessing, which is a desire to bring goodness into the world that isn't there yet. So taking its energy down from Chokma, Chesed echoes into the world the impulse to bring something good in that as yet hasn't arrived. That we might see as the essence of loving-kindness. Zeus, Jupiter, the Hierophant, these are figures that bestow their blessings upon humankind, that bring something into the world other than that which is already there. So let's bring our attention over to the left-hand side and see what's going on there. At the very top of that left-hand pillar sits Binar, which corresponds to Saturn, Kronos. Binar is receiving the divine energy down from Keta through Chokma. So if Chokma in the process of manifestation we think of as something like an intention or an inspiration, then Binar is the first point at which something takes form. An intention or an inspiration will generally give rise to a thought or a plan or an idea. Whatever it's going to be finds an initial form in the mind of the person who's going to produce it. And it's that sense of a first capture of something into a perceptible form that Binar is all about. As well as being strongly associated with Saturn, Kronos, Binar is also strongly associated with the feminine because it is the first step, the first inkling of materiality. It's the womb, it's the matrix from which something physical will eventually be created. The influx of divine manifestation proceeds down from Binar to the Sephirah named Geburah, which sits in the left-hand pillar directly opposite Chesed. Geburah is translated as strength, and it corresponds to the god Mars, or Ares in the Greek, the god of war. It's very much the opposite to Chesed. And sometimes the left-hand pillar and the right-hand pillar are known respectively as the pillar of strength and the pillar of mercy due to the central position that Geburah and Chesed occupy respectively in each. With regard to correspondences with the tarot, in the left-hand pillar, the path flowing down from Bina to Geburah corresponds to the chariot and the path that flows down from Gubura to the Sephira below which is Hod corresponds with the hanged man so on the other side of the tree the right hand pillar the tarot cards that we see there suggest that moving down this pillar is about pouring blessings into the world as suggested by the Hierophant and about negotiating with the consequences of one's actions, as suggested by the Wheel of Fortune. On the left-hand side, it's a very different picture. The chariot suggests riding into battle, putting on your armour and prevailing, defending, contending and refusing to submit. And the hanged man is a card that suggests an arduous ordeal, suffering, a situation in which we're really testing our capacities, our ability to endure and 
very possibly being radically changed in the process of that. So, returning to some of those main questions that we set out to explore, Bynar, Saturn, Kronos seems to be a very dark pattern, a very dark dynamic that's built into the fabric of the way things manifest. It's about what happens when things gain a particular form, but then the forces involved want to hold on to that form, prevent it changing, becoming anything else. To hold on to the power of that form, which entails a cancellation of the future, the consumption of whatever tries to rise up against the present form. And this seems to be an archetype that's very active, very persistent at the present time. We can turn to the tree of life and you can use the tree of life to explain absolutely everything. That's okay, that's what it's for. But what the tree of life shows us perhaps is how Saturn Binar sits on top of that left-hand pillar, the pillar of strength. And if we want to understand better the dynamics of Kronos, then maybe it's going to be important for us to get to grips with the dynamics of that left-hand pillar. Everything I've talked about so far in this episode has its place on the tree of life. Everything plays its part in the process by which material reality unfolds from the divine. There's nothing evil or illegitimate about any of this. Although I think we all have different temperaments and preferences. And I think maybe we do find ourselves strongly predisposed towards viewing things either from the side of the pillar of mercy or the pillar of strength. I think what I've realised over the past weeks and what I think is very clearly reflected in the themes that I've explored in recent episodes is how I'm very much a right pillar sort of person. My inclination is to believe that The world is not as good as it could be, and I incline towards the idea of bringing more goodness into the world, either by making it other than what it is, or bringing that in from somewhere beyond the world. That makes me a bit of a transcendentalist, and it also makes me very sad, because at the moment... There aren't as many signs as there could be, perhaps, that change is going to come or that change is even possible. Recently, I've been reading the writings of the philosopher Nick Land, who comes at these questions from a very different perspective from my own, and who espouses views that I really couldn't go along with. Yet I found his writing really useful as a way, I hope, of gaining some insight into that left-hand pillar approach. Land is regarded as one of the founders of a branch of political philosophy known as accelerationism. The idea behind this is that capitalism is an aspect of nature, perhaps not completely of human nature, but a kind of dynamic at work in reality, a kind of agent of change, perhaps the only significant agent of change. The idea behind accelerationism is that we engage with capitalism not by resisting it or trying to replace it with something else, because there isn't anything else, but instead by stoking it up, exaggerating it, taking it to its extremes, 
and maybe then it will collapse under its own weight and something unthinkable will come along or maybe it won't and we'll all be destroyed by it but given that there seemed to be no viable alternative then that was going to happen anyway one of Land's essays has the title A Critique of Transcendental Miserabilism and it's very much my perspective I think the right hand pillar way of looking at things that he's contending with here he writes what transcendental miserabilism has no right to is the pretense of a positive thesis the Marxist dream of dynamism without competition was merely a dream an old monotheistic dream restated the wolf lying down with the lamb if such a dream counts as imagination then imagination is no more than a defect of the species the packaging of tawdry contradictions as utopian fantasies to be turned against reality in the service of sterile negativity post-capitalism has no real meaning except an end to the engine of change life continues and capitalism does life in a way it has never been done before if that doesn't count as new then the word new has been stripped down to a hollow denunciation it needs to be reallocated to the sole thing that knows how to use it effectively to the Shoggoth summoning regenerative anomalization of fate, to the runaway becoming of such infinite plasticity that nature warps and dissolves before it, to the thing, to capitalism. And if that makes transcendental miserablists unhappy, the simple truth of the matter is, anything would. There are some references in that passage to the writing of H.P. Lovecraft and Lovecraft's vision of a world in which humanity is a bit of a blip, a bit of a aberration in the face of the gigantic and ancient great old ones who are destined to return to their rightful place on earth and enslave or destroy us all. That Lovecraftian outlook really informs the anti-humanism that characterises Land's perspective and the perspectives of other accelerationist thinkers and writers. For them, embracing capitalism and riding it as hard and fast to its conclusion as we possibly can, that's about embracing reality and meeting it head on. Humanism is just a waste of time, just an illusion, because, of course, reality wasn't created by human beings. For those of us drawn more to one of those pillars than the other, and, of course, there is a middle pillar as well, which we haven't had time to look into in this episode, but it's important to remember that all of them have their place on the tree. All of them, according to the Tree of Life, are part of the fabric of reality and although land might want to pit humanism and reality against one another human beings their thoughts and all their creations are necessarily a part of reality what the tree of life suggests for me whether we regard this as fortunately or unfortunately is that both of the pillars right and left demarcate roots back up towards the divine. Both offer roots towards awakening, towards recognising our divine nature. A theme that we've explored here previously is how awakening spiritual breakthroughs can be traumatic, but also how this seems to work also in the opposite direction. Trauma can be awakening. Trauma can sometimes break down the ego in a way that allows a light of spiritual understanding to shine through that perhaps wouldn't have been admitted otherwise. I'm certainly not suggesting, however, that trauma is a price anybody should be willing to pay. 
thinking back to those tarot cards that correspond to the paths down the left-hand pillar, the chariot and the hanged man. There is a path to awakening that involves riding right into things, being driven along by them, suffering to breaking point and in the process being cracked wide open, reality flooding into us and annihilating us. Whether we take that path or the alternative of trying to open ourselves up from within, gradually, both are viable routes back up to the top of the tree. Kronos indeed has his fangs sunk into the world at the moment and that makes it harder to have a sense that we can bring goodness into the world. We may find ourselves having to confront horror and despair and destruction instead. For those of us with a magical practice, a spiritual practice, maybe it could be helpful to reflect that even though this might not be the path we would have chosen for ourselves or for anybody, it can and will still lead us to the realisation of what being human really means. Some ideas for formulating your own thoughts on these matters anyway, I hope. Alright, look after yourself my lovely. As ever, to support the podcast and access extra material, you can sign up on Patreon at patreon.com slash oeith. Or if Patreon's not your thing, have a look in the notes and you can see various ways by which you can make a one-off donation if you found this episode useful or any of the other ones. Otherwise, as usual, I have absolutely no clue what the next episode might be about, but hopefully something will come along and we'll speak again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.